0: Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 12. And we will read the passage we read last week, verses 41 through 44. Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant, quadrants. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, "Surely I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to this treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood." Listen to what Calvin says about this particular passage. A highly useful doctrine that whatever men offer to God ought to be estimated not by its apparent value, but only by the feeling of the heart. And that the holy affection of him who, according to this small means, offers to God the little that he has, is more worthy of esteem than that of him who offers a hundred times more out of his abundance. Last week we saw that Jesus had moved from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women. And there in that court of the women were 13 treasuries on the three walls which the people would come and deposit their offerings And Jesus and his disciples sat there and began to watch the people. As Jesus watched the wealthy put in large sums, and their coins, of course, would make a lot of noise as they were put into these brass horns that were reduced down into these treasury boxes that they had, everyone could hear the noise and everyone was thinking to themselves, wow, what, what amount they're they're giving and and they were praising these religious individuals for the large amounts that they were given. And then we have this widow woman who appears and she goes to the Treasury, waiting in line for her turn, and she puts in two coins, which hardly made a noise at all. No one really noticed it because it was the smallest of all coins. Now, it equaled the amount of one sixty-fourth of a day's wages. A denarius was a day's wage. So therefore, if you made sixty-four dollars, if we brought it to our time, then therefore it would be one dollar out of the sixty-four. In other words, compared to what everyone else was given, it was really nothing. Kind of like last week when I came in here looking for something and I looked on the floor and I found a quarter. Possibly one of our children were to put it in the offering plate. If any of you children come up and claim it, it's going into the offering plate. But anyway, I mean, you think about that compared to what others give, we, we look upon it as nothing. And that's how they were looking upon her offering, as nothing. It would never be missed because it was so little. But we are told that it was all that she had. Jesus provides us with this information. Otherwise, we would have never realized that it was all that she had. He tells us this. Now, why does He tell us this? Why does he tell us that this woman gave all that she had, that she gave more than anyone else? Well, of course, Jesus is doing what he normally does, teaching. He's teaching his disciples a lesson. Jesus was constantly looking for opportunities to teach the disciples as well as teach us. Now, you may wonder, how in the world could this be? How could what she gave be more than what others gave? It it wasn't even noticeable it was such a little amount. Well, he tells us, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now let that sink in for a moment. She put in all that she had, her entire livelihood. Has anyone in here ever put in your entire livelihood into the offering plate? I haven't. This woman did. She put in her entire livelihood. Now, as we mentioned last week, why? Why? Didn't she just put in one of the coins? She had two. Kept the other one to purchase bread for herself and possibly her children if she had children. Why did she feel that she had to give all that she had? Now, of course, we don't know her heart. We don't know her motive. But we do learn much about her from what Jesus says. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. Jesus indicates that when God considers how much people give to his kingdom, he considers not the monetary sum, but the intent of the heart and the sacrifice made. The widow is praised because though her gift was small in amount, it represented a true sacrifice on her part. The widow gave up all she had because of her great dedication to the Lord. John Calvin said, Whatever men offer to God ought to be estimated not by its apparent value, but only by the feeling of the heart. The Lord is less concerned about the total we give to His kingdom and more about the spirit in which we give it. He is glorified by any gift we give when our hearts are right in the right place. So we learned last week that it's all about the heart. Therefore, we must examine our heart to see if our giving comes from a loving heart. But not only is our giving to be from a loving heart, But all that we do must be submissive to God and His Word. Now Jesus teaches in this passage that God's bookkeeping works on a different principle from man's. He's teaching us some important lessons about Christian stewardship and how we must view money and kingdom work. First of all, major point number one, and I'm going to say that because I'm going to have subpoints. I don't want to confuse you. Major point number one, God's providence uses this widow to teach us about money in these four verses. First, I think all of us would agree that everything we have has ultimately come from God. In His providence, He has blessed us. I think we'd all agree with that, right? I mean, most of us would agree with what Job said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we all agree that God gives and God takes away. We are simply to be stewards of God in this world. And we all must give an account in how... We use that which God has blessed us with. No doubt, God allows us to use the money that we earn for our personal needs. We know that. But yet, we must examine what our personal needs truly are. Notice I said personal needs, not personal wants, and there's a difference. A lot of times we think our personal wants or our personal needs, and that's not correct. I mean, this is where we must have wisdom to deal with many temptations that will come our way. This widow chose to put all that she had in the treasury. Now, her actions are not meant to say that we must put everything that we have in the offering plate. As we learned last week, again it is teaching us about our heart we can put everything that we have into the offering plate but if our heart is not right it's not pleasing to the lord it's an issue of our heart now paul addresses this matter of money in first timothy chapter 1 verse 6 through 12 so i want to read that passage to you first timothy chapter 6 Verse 6 through 12. But God with, but godly, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothes, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness... Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Paul is dealing with money. In verses 3 through 5, which we did not read, he speaks of the abuse of men who used their religion to benefit their self, to benefit themselves by worldliness, to exalt their self among the people. They, they were men who were covetous and they were not content. And due to this, their covetous caused them to be rebuked by Paul. Now, Christianity should radically change our mindset when it comes to materialism and money. The truth that Paul lays down is godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, when we think about that, we have to understand contentment. How many are content with what we have. Matthew Henry says, If a man have but a little in this world, yet if we have but enough to carry him through it, he needs desire no more. His godliness with that will be great gain. For little which a righteous man has is better than riches of many wicked. In other words, where there is true godliness, there will be contentment, he's saying. Contentment comes from godliness. So he that is godly will be content in this world no matter what he has, how much he has or how little he has. So all godly people must learn with Paul to be content. Look with me to what Paul says in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, a very familiar verse we have in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, but I want to read two verses before verse 13, verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Next time someone quotes that verse, verse 13, ask them what two verses precede that. And I guarantee it the majority of people will not be able to tell you what two verses precede. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, we often take this verse out of context. Paul is talking about what? Paul is talking about being content. He's talking about having a lot or having nothing. And that he's able to be content. Now, why was he able to be content? Well, he told us. He said, I have learned. So in other words, through what he had gone through providentially he's learned because he's had times when he's had nothing and he's learned because he's had a lot. And he says, I've learned through those times through what God has providentially brought into my life to be content. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me during those times. So do you see the context of that particular verse? Now, one reason Paul gives this exhortation is to remind us that we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we will carry nothing out of this world. As I said last week, none of us that I know of have ever seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse. You may have seen a U-Haul behind a hearse accidentally, just pulled up behind it or something. But you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul with all of this stuff that's in there from that person. I mean, if you have a place to live, if you have food to eat, then what the Scripture is saying to us is that we should be content. Are you? Are you content simply with food and a place to live? We see that this woman was content. She we could say, was a godly woman. She understood what it meant to trust the Lord. Now, our problem is, is that we have been sucked into the mindset of this world. We are bombarded with advertisements every single day To entice us to buy something, to desire something that in reality we really don't need. Now, I wish I could stand here and tell you that I'm immune from that. I get those advertisements through my phone just like you do. And when I see those advertisements of some tool, I think to myself, I sure do need that tool. I'm just glad that I don't live real close to Harbor Freight. I remember talking to Bill Inman. Many of you know Bill that used to be in our church. Bill lived just right down the street from Harbor Freight. He was over there almost all the time. I said, I would be right there with you, brother, if I lived next door to it like you do. We're bombarded by it. And the temptation is great. We think that we have to have these things to be content. And Paul is saying, no, your contentment is in Christ. And if you have Christ as your contentment, then you realize you don't need these other things. Don't be tempted by them. Then the 2nd subpoint is that he warns against covetousness. Those who desire to be rich are more apt to fall into temptation and a snare, Paul tells us. Now notice, Paul doesn't say those who are rich. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Those who desire to be rich. That's most of us in one sense. Now we're all rich. You know that compared to all other countries. We're rich. But yet, we want to be more wealthy. We want more And that's what Paul is dealing with. Those who desire more, who want to be rich. All who place their happiness in worldly wealth, longing and pursuing riches. He says they will most likely fall. Because the devil sees that. He sees our desire and what does he do? He baits the hook. He based the hook by sending those advertisements, by putting those things into our mind. Now, we know that this is often mentioned in Scripture, and throughout history we see it. I mean, beginning with Adam and Eve, the temptation that came their way to be like God, desiring lusting covetousness. We see the same thing with Cain, Lot, Achan. Absalom, Solomon, Judas, Ananias, Sapphirah, Demas. I mean, desiring riches will cause a person to fall into foolishness and hurtful lust, which can easily ruin a person forever for worldly lust or what Paul says, foolish and harmful, drowning men in destruction and perdition. Of course, it wasn't that these men were saved and they lost their salvation. No, these men proclaimed to be saved, but yet their desire revealed that they really weren't. We must be wise and consider the damage of worldly, fleshly lust. We should really be afraid of them and consider how dangerous they are. Why? Because Paul tells us that many have shipwrecked their faith. So, therefore, it should scare us. The third subpoint Paul affirms that the love of money is the root of all evil, there in verse 10. I mean, there were actually those that Paul knew who had fallen away from the faith due to this love that they had for wealth, this covetousness they had. They had quit Christianity and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. No doubt people may have money and not love it. But many love it and they fall away. They fall into evil, into many sorrows. When a a person loves money, he becomes consumed by it. And he leaves the faith because he cannot serve two masters is what the scriptures tell us. And Paul had had a first-hand experience. Deimos had left him for the world is what Paul tells us. For this present world, it became dearer to him than Christianity. So therefore, he was pierced with many sorrows. There was a pi- price to pay. Fourth subpoint: Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. Is it sinful isn't it for a man to have money? No. It's sinful for a man to love money, especially a man of God. Some of these TV evangelists need to be told that, especially for them. And that's what Paul addresses here. For him to set his heart upon the things of this world is especially sinful and shameful for a man of God. Instead, he must pursue, Paul says, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now, this is for all Christians, but especially for a pastor elder. They are to be examples before the flock. Matthew Henry says, They have need to put on patience and meekness, patience to bear both the rebuke of providence and the reproach of men, and meekness wherewith to instruct gainsayers and pass pass by the injuries that are done to us. It's not enough simply to flee these things, but we must follow after that which is godliness, Paul tells us. So these things are contrary to one another. We are to fight the good fight of faith. We are to fight against this world, against that desire for wealth. We are to fight against that because we see the ultimate ruin. We know that this world is seeking to squeeze us into its mold, to conform us into its image. And there's a conflict against corruption and the powers of darkness and temptation. It's a fight of faith. The weapons that we have are not cardinal. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So God has enabled us, God has equipped us to pull down strongholds, to fight against the flesh, to fight against materialism, to fight against the love of money. So Paul exhorts Timothy to lay hold of eternal life as those who are afraid of coming up short or losing it. Lay hold, take heed, don't lose your grip. Grip a hold of the Spirit, grip a hold of God's Word, hold fast to that which God has blessed us with, given us as far as the Spirit is concerned and the Word of God. We see in Revelations 3.11 it says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take it from your crown. So we're to hold on to it. We're to cling to godliness and righteousness. Therefore, if we do that, we will not fall. Now the second major point is that this widow trusted God to take care of her. As we've already read, put all that she had her whole livelihood. Now, the wrong mindset of money has caused many problems in and outside the church. As the scripture teaches us, the love of money brings destruction to a person's life. What is the main purpose of money? Is it not? To be used for God's glory, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, do all for the glory of God. Now, how do we buy what we drink and eat? Well, it's money that purchases it, and it's emphasizing that all that we do is for the glory of God. Now, of course, that includes meeting our personal needs that we have. But is that as far as it goes? Well, of course not. There's widespread cynicism about giving today in many quarters. Much of this is due to nonprofit organizations that have mismanaged funds. Therefore, many people are relu- reluctant to give because of these organizations and how they have, we know, ripped people off. Unscrupulous televangelists have given tithing a bad name. Many do not contribute to the work of the Lord, to the church, but yet this is a significant error on their part. Because the Bible clearly commands that we are to tithe, to give. Christians are to be good stewards of their resources. They're to be good stewards so that they might use their resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now the whole concept of stewardship began where? What happened in the very beginning, children? God created. So everything began there, right? It began with God's creation, and we see throughout Scripture, as the psalmist tells us in 24-1, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness the world and those who dwell therein. So who is the author of everything, Children? God, right? God is the author of everything, the creator of all things. Therefore, if He's the author of everything, the creator of all things, He what? He owns all things. So whatever God makes, He owns. Therefore, whatever we own, we are stewards of. We have been given gifts from God. God has ultimately ownership of all of our possessions. So we could say that He simply loans us all that we have and He expects us to manage it in a way that will honor and glorify Him. We see that stewardship began there in the Garden of Eden. What did God tell Adam and Eve at the very beginning? He told them that they had full dominion over over the garden, over all creation that He had made. And they were to be stewards of it. They were not given ownership of the Garden of Eden. But they had a responsibility. Their responsibility was to manage it for His glory. They were to ensure that the garden was tilled, that it was cultivated, that it produced. They were not to abuse it. They were not to exploit it that they were to be good stewards of that which God had provided and therefore not allow it to spoil nor waste it. Now we learn ourselves that that which God blesses us with, the money that we have, also is His. We may have $50 and we go out and we buy clothes, Therefore, we realize that we no longer have $50 in hand. We have $50 worth of clothes, right? And we wear those clothes, and those clothes deteriorate, and they lose value. Likewise, with everything else we have, it becomes an asset. We have furniture. We have cars. We have houses. We have all the utensils that are in the houses. All of these things are assets Sadly to say, most of them depreciate. We know about the only thing that appreciates is maybe a house. Or if you keep a car long enough, maybe it will turn around and begin to eventually appreciate instead of depreciate anymore if you want to keep it that long. But we have to realize that God is interested in how we spend our money. In how we take care of our personal lives, our homes, and every aspect of our life. All of these areas are to be managed and allocated in a manner that is pleasing to God because He is the one that has provided them. In Malachi, God questioned Israel because it had violated the command to bring all the tithe into the storehouse. And God reminded them of His promise there in verse 10. When he said, bring all the tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings, that there will not be room enough to receive them. So what is God saying there? God is more or less saying, test me. He's saying, put me to the test. You do what I say do out of a right heart and see if I do not bless you as a result. Again, listen to what R.C. Sproul says. This means that if the principle of tithing is still in effect, we systematically rob God when we do not tithe. Let me repeat that. Malachi's teaching indicates that when we fail to tithe, we're not merely robbing the church, the clergy, or Christian educators. We are robbing God. But note that God has words not only of condemnation for people, but also a promise of prosperity were they to change their ways. God challenged them to be faithful. Giving his own promise that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings upon them. This widow believed that promise of God. She believed that if she gave her all, God would take care of her needs. Now, I would have loved it if we would have had record in the Scripture more about this widow and the future of her life. Hopefully in heaven we'll find out what transpired after she left the temple that day. But we must have the same faith that she had in our day to live a life that is pleasing to God to where we prioritize how we use our money in a way that honors God. When Christians don't tithe, we know that it hinders kingdom work. When Christians don't tithe to churches, then churches are not able to do what they would like to do. You know I manage the funds for African Pastors Conference. We have to raise approximately $40,000 a year. And that falls upon me here in America to raise that money. And so I'm constantly contacting churches to see if they're going to follow up as they did the year before to make sure that they're going to give again so that we can reach that particular amount so that we can continue to have our conferences, almost 60 conferences there in Africa. And there have been those times when I've had churches tell us, you know, we'd like to give more, or we'd like to even give this year, but we don't have the money to do it. I can't fuss at them because they don't have the money to do it. They don't have the money to do it. They just don't have the money to do it. But why do they not have the money to do it? The reason they don't have the money to do it where they did it one year and they didn't do it the next year is because something's happened, right? They're not receiving the money that they've received in the past. And therefore, it hinders the ministry, the work that God has placed upon our heart to do. Some of you read Evan and Bonnie's email that they're sending, sent out and, and they're having to come back to the States to, to raise more money. I hate that. I hate that they're having to come back to raise more money. I wish there was the money given, but yet there's a need. And like I said, when people don't give, whether it be our church or other church, then people lack, missionaries lack. And they have to take their selves away from the mission field to come back to the states to raise money when they need to be on the mission field continuing the work that they need to do. That is one thing that I, I rejoice in as far as Southern Baptists and I believe they have that right to where missionaries don't have to worry about their funds because the churches cooperatively work together to provide for those missionaries. So you go do the ministry, we will be at home raising the support for you. But this is not only something that affects our personal finances, but the finances of the church. So how do we view our money received from church members? One thing we must consider is that when we tithe or give, that this money is now kingdom money, kingdom work. The widow gave her money with no strings attached. Now this doesn't mean that we can't designate offerings, but it does mean that once we have given to the work of the Lord the responsibility of the elders to see that that money is used in a biblical manner because they are the ones that have to give an account come judgment day. So there's a great responsibility that elders are held accountable to. Now the most important investment that we can make is in the work of the kingdom. Because it's an eternal return. These returns are not just for us, but these returns are for our our family, for our children and our our grandchildren and and the next generation to come. Our generation of Christians must invest in the future. God would have us invest for the next generation that comes up. And this follows Jesus admonition, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If we truly believe that we are investing in kingdom work, then therefore you realize that you will never lose a penny in that investment. We will fulfill, He will fulfill His promise. And I believe that we've even seen it in our church. We didn't purchase this facility. We didn't purchase this land. No, it was graciously given to us. But I believe the reason it was graciously given to us because God in His providence, the way that He worked, opened the windows of heaven because we had been faithful. We had been faithful in doing the things God called us to do as far as ministry is concerned. Some of you remember when over ten years ago, we gave $20,000 out of our building fund to Emmisdale Baptist Church there in Zambia to help them have a place to worship because they had outgrown that little bitty small building that they have. And when we gave that $20,000, it helped them build a building three times the size that they had so that their members could worship together. We lovingly did that because we saw a need and met a need. And as a result of that, God opened a door for us, first of all, to find land there at Ridgewood and get it a lot less than it was originally asked for. Over half the price less. And we had a place for eight years there on Ridgewood. And you know, as I've shared before, just as well as your desire, our desire was to have a building. And we were planning on building but as i shared with you I, I just it was just it was just difficult for me to say we've got to go out and borrow 350,000 because i knew how that would hinder our ministry our mission work and i spent many hours in prayer praying god isn't there another way and as i've shared before one week before we were cutting trees to put a parking lot in God began to open the door and show us what He was going to do for us. And over the next six months, He eventually brought all this about that we are a part of now. And brought us into a situation to where the believers that were here were wanting to see a work similar to theirs continued. So God not only answered our prayers, but answered their prayers and brought all of this about for His glory and honor to where we're able to do so much more now for kingdom work. Our focus must be like the widow. All that we have, Lord, is yours. Use it for your glory. Now this story of the widow's offering has long provided the church with an example of humble devotion to the Lord. It also speaks to the people of God about bringing the true nature of giving. Now there's a second theme also that I want you to see in this account of the widow, which is the coming judgment upon the nation of Israel. And this is an underlying theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. The day of covenant-breaking Israel are numbered. What is left for them is covenant curses. Why does this account of the widow might appear here? Kind of an unusual place that it appears right here just before Jesus will go into the upper room and then go to the garden and be arrested and then be tried and crucified and raised from the dead. It it seems that it's out of place in one sense. But it's not. See, what the Scriptures is teaching us and what uh, Mark is writing according to Peter and what's happened here in God's providence is that there's a contrast between the scribes' pretense of religion to gain money and this widow's piety in expressing her love for God. The two opposites here. There's this contrast between her and the scribes. She possesses what God loves, faith. They do not. Now next week we will begin looking at Jesus' pronouncement of the judgment upon the temple, the destruction of the temple. So we will see the bridge between the scribes and their greediness and the pronouncement of judgment by Jesus. The, the judgment of the scribes was because of their preoccupation with their appearance of godliness. They thought they were godly. They demonstrated their, quote, "godliness" in what they robe and uh, wear, wore, as far as their robes were concerned but yet we know by what Jesus says that they weren't godly. So the extent of their faith was no deeper than their religious display, but not so for this widow. Her offering was far superior than all, Jesus tells us. And she demonstrates that of cross-bearing, that of self-denial which Jesus has been teaching on, throughout the gospel of mark so we could say that she demonstrates genuine faith while the scribes express unbelief so jesus sets true faith against unbelief she sets this he sets this widow against the scribes the widow Is part of the evidence that God will use against the religious of that day, against Israel's unfaithfulness when he puts them on trial. My question in closing Who are we more like? The scribe or the widow? Does God have a case against us due to our lack of concern for others? Or for taking advantage of others for our own benefit? There's another judgment coming. Greater than this judgment that we will begin looking at next week. This judgment that will come will be a judgment of all men. What will Jesus say to us? Is your faith genuine like this widow? Or is it only outward like the scribes? Have you ever come to the point to where you've trusted Jesus Christ so that it has radically changed your life? And it's changed your life to an extent to where you are content. You're content with what God has blessed you with. You're content with your position in life. You're content with all that you have because you know that it came from God. Is it evident that you have self-denial? That you have taken up the cross and began to follow Him? Is it evident that you have been changed to where your mind is upon kingdom work and not simply gathering things for your own personal possessions? This lady, this widow woman, reveals to us what true religion is what true faith is because she gave her all. She was following her master who gave his all, who gave his life so that we might have life. May we likewise be faithful to give our all. Let us pray. Um